Good morning. This is the first lesson in a short series on the letter to the churches of Asia in Revelation uh, chapters 1 through 3. This message is going to be a little bit unusual. I call it a hybrid. It reminds me of my first uh, trip to India. When I arrived in India in the airport, uh, my letter actually arrived two weeks after I did, so those who were going to pick me up had no idea I was there, and uh, it took me about 12 hours to make a phone call back to the U.S., and a few uh, agonizing hours and conversations before I learned where to meet my contact in, uh, in the city of Bombay, which was about 8 million people back then. And the person who told me uh, that I was supposed to meet my contact at the YMCA closed our conversation with these words, don't let the cab driver rip you off, which was the absolute worst thing that they could have said because I knew it was going to happen and there was nothing I could do about it. I would have rather had it happen in pure ignorance. But it was the longest taxi ride I've taken in a long time. Uh, and we went through all the back streets and whatever, and of course the meter kept going up and up, and that was the point of it all. The point of my bringing that to your attention is that you may wonder when I'm going to get to my destination, which is Revelation chapter 1. Uh, and it may take a few back roads before we get there, but it seems to me that it really is important for me maybe to set the uh, the stage a little bit. Revelation chapter 1 is the chapter that introduces, as it were, not only the whole book of Revelation, but the letters which will be addressed to these seven churches of Asia. So we can't really start in Revelation 2. We must start in Revelation chapter 1. Next week is our Christmas program, and I won't be preaching. So this is my one shot at a Christmas message. And now the question is, how do I cram a, Christian, a Christmas message into Revelation chapter 1? Hang on, I'm going to try. It may be a little shoehornish, but I think, I think that I can uh, do it. And, and uh, I, I say that making a couple of observations about the, uh, the first uh, uh, covering of the birth of our Lord in the Gospels uh, of the New Testament. Two of the four Gospels have birth accounts. I think you know that. Uh, Matthew and Luke. Mark and John do not have uh, classical uh, birth accounts. And if you look at the two accounts in both Matthew and Luke, the birth of our Lord itself, that is just that event, is really not... Uh, highly emphasized as an event. And those of you who have been, as I have been, in the labor and delivery room, you probably know there's a lot of things you just soon leave out of all of that. One verse in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, two verses in Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, which raises the question, uh, why do two of the Gospels uh, step aside or bypass the account of the birth of our Lord Jesus, Mark and John. <clears throat> and I would suspect, at least it is my belief, that as we look more carefully at the gospel accounts and how they deal with the coming of our Lord Jesus, 
that we will better understand the Gospels, but we will also better understand where the book of Revelation is going to take us in Revelation chapter 1. So let's take a look, first of all, at the Gospel of Matthew on our bypath meadow on our way to Revelation chapter 1. As you know, Matthew is written to a predominantly Jewish audience. But the interesting thing about that gospel is, as much as it's aimed at Jews, it has a very decided Gentile flavor. Now, if you remember that in the New Testament, one of the great underlying issues is the whole matter of the relationship between Gentiles and Jews, and in particular, in the church, Gentile Christians and Jewish believers and how they relate to each other. And so I think it is very important for the Jewish audience to understand the role of Gentiles in God's plan and program of salvation. And so Matthew has a great deal to say uh, that has to do with the Gentiles. As I mentioned in your notes, uh, you'll uh, you clearly recognize that while it has a Jewish flavor, Jesus has a strong anti-pharisaical, anti-legalistic viewpoint of Judaism. That is, he comes down hard on the Judaism of his, uh, of his day. Now, when you look at the genealogy that starts Matthew's gospel, you'll notice that his genealogy begins at Abraham and moves to our Lord Jesus. The interesting thing about that is, that you would expect this for Jews. That is, Jews stake their claim with Abraham. And, and, uh, and so they looked back and they saw their relationship to Abraham as the key. What's going to be interesting in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's also repeated in Luke, is that John the Baptist is going to come along and he's going to say to those who rely so heavily on their genealogical relationship to Abraham, he's going to say, don't get too puffy about this, puffed up about this matter of Abraham. God could raise up seed to Abraham from these rocks. And then he goes on to talk about the judgment that is coming. It's that genealogy in Matthew that has three Gentile women, uh, Tamar, uh, Rahab, and Ruth, in the genealogical line. And obviously that was significant in Matthew's mind. When you look at the account of the Magi appearing in Jerusalem, here you have the, 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 the sort of capital of, of Judaism um, and of political power. And the interesting verse that I like is, is chapter 2 and verse 3. And it says, when the Magi appeared, all of Jerusalem was troubled. Think about that. The birth of our Lord Jesus has been announced to the people of Jerusalem by the Magi. And, and, and Bethlehem is, is five miles plus, or a, a little bit perhaps, but five miles walk from Jerusalem is Bethlehem and the birthplace of Messiah. They know from their own prophets, from Micah chapter 5, they know that when Messiah is born, he'll be born in Bethlehem, all Jerusalem is troubled. So far as we know, nobody from Jerusalem went to Bethlehem. But they're upset. Herod's upset because there's a rival king. Judaism is upset because 
they're afraid somebody's going to rock their boat. So you have this, this Jewish element, but it does not come across favorably for Judaism. The Magi come from afar. We don't really know exactly from where. Uh, some, including myself, have a feeling that it probably relates to Daniel and Israel's time in Babylonian captivity. But they come looking for the Messiah, the King. When Jesus begins his ministry, as it's described in Matthew chapter 4, he comes to Galilee of the Gentiles. And that's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Interesting, is it not? He doesn't begin his ministry actually in Judea as much as he does in Galilee, which has a much larger Gentile population. When you get to chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus immediately begins to rock the Jewish boat, so to speak. And he says in chapter 5 and verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. So here are the overachievers, the guys at the top of the list for getting into heaven. And Jesus says, you're not, they're not getting there. And you're not getting there either unless you do better than they do. That obviously does not put Jesus on good footing with the Jewish system. Then he goes to uh, on in chapter 5 in verse 21 and following. It says, in effect, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And now he's taking predominant Jewish teaching and saying they've got it wrong. Not a way, again, to win points with the Jewish religious leaders. Then in chapter 6, he, he really hits at the heart of much of, of the Jewish religious practice. And he basically says in, in reference to, uh, to uh, alms and to prayer and to fasting, don't do this so that other people see it and commend you. You'll not have favor from God. You'll have the applause of men. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, strikes very hard at, at Judaism. And then you have these texts like uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. Actually, it's a little more than that. But remember the centurion who says to Jesus, I want you to come and take care and, and help with my servant. You don't need to come. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. So I understand what your power and authority is like. Your power and authority is so great, you don't need to bother to come to my house. You can do it long distance. And Jesus says, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. And then he talks about people who, who, uh, who will come from, uh, from various places, but they're not going to go into the kingdom. But, but Gentiles are. So he includes Gentiles. The Canaanite woman in uh, Matthew chapter 15, when Jesus says to her, uh, it isn't right to take the, the food from the table and give it to the dogs. And she says, even the puppies under the table get some crumbs. A Canaanite woman is one who gets her request answered because of her faith. So all of that is to say that when Matthew presents the coming of the Christ, he does it to Jews, but in a way that makes it clear to them that the Gentiles are a part of God's purpose of saving men. When you come to the Gospel of Luke, it's the reverse. 
Luke is written to Gentiles, but you'll find a, a fairly strong Jewish flavor because Gentile Christians need to understand the roots from which Christianity has come and the whole Old Testament backdrop which paves the way. Luke chapter 1 is primarily about John the Baptist. Chapter 2 primarily about Jesus. And John, I mean Luke intertwines those in such a way that you see the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist, which obviously is a very close relationship. and, And those two he draws together. And as I point out, it's interesting, is it not, the similarity between Elizabeth and, and Mary, not only a, a, a cousin relationship, but also the fact that here are two women for very different circumstances who cannot, should not, be bearing children. And both of them do through the power of God. You have the priestly roots of Zacharias and, and Elizabeth. You have the two temple visits the one where Jesus is brought to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day, and that's where Simeon and Anna are there and and acknowledge that this is the Messiah and praise God. Then you have the second coming of Jesus to the uh, to the temple at the age of twelve, where he astounds uh, those who are the religious leaders and teachers, not to mention his parents, with the wisdom and knowledge that he has related to the uh, scriptures. Shepherds are Jewish. Granted, they are not on the upper socioeconomic ladder of Judaism, but they're not Gentiles. They may be one step removed, but they are Jewish and they are included. No escape to uh, Egypt is mentioned, and Jesus then goes to the synagogue at Nazareth in chapter 4, where he will identify himself in terms of Isaiah's prophecy. So, Matthew, Jewish gospel, focuses on a Gentile reality. Luke, a Gentile gospel, focuses on the Jewish reality, and that was necessary if Jews and Gentiles were to live in harmony uh, in the church under the gospel. When you come to Mark, you see a guy who is very brief. I think I've told you my hope is that when we finish the seven churches of Asia, that I will move to the gospel of Mark. I have not preached through Mark, and I'm looking forward to it. Man, that guy can really get out and move. Uh, When it comes to covering ground, he can move right along. But you have to watch Mark, because sometimes he will give a very brief account, but he'll include details that are not in the lengthier accounts. So that when you come to that two-verse description in chapter 1 about Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted, he's the one who makes the con- uh, the con- comment about the wild beasts and so on. And you're thinking, where did this come from? You know, I think Satan and all this stuff. But when you think about the wilderness, there's critters out there. Forty days, forty nights, critters in the wilderness. And that was a part of the uh, temptation package. No mention in in Mark's gospel about Jesus' birth. But what is interesting is he goes right to the Old Testament and the prophecies of the Old Testament that pertain to the coming of John the Baptist. And it seems to me that what's happening in Mark is that Mark is pushing the boundaries out. And what he's saying to us, in effect, is, yes, I understand the details that Matthew and Luke have included, 
that, 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 that encompass the near events, you know, a couple of years before or after the birth of our Lord Jesus. I understand those things, but what you need to understand is all of this is a part of a bigger picture that goes back to the prophets where they spoke of the coming of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. And, of course, we see that in Micah uh, chapter 5 as well. So he pushes, as it were, the beginning back into the Old Testament and the uh, the Old Testament prophets. You also see in, in Mark's gospel, the opposition comes very quickly. Chapter 2, the opposition is there through the whole chapter. And chapter 3, they've already decided they're going to put Jesus to death. Now we come to John, and I've saved him to, for last for a couple of reasons. One, he's the last one as we work our way through the Gospels. The other is that John is the one who, at least in my understanding, is the, the human element, the human author of the uh, book of Revelation. And so I, I want to I see how John deals with the coming of our Lord Jesus. No birth account, but John approaches the incarnation of our Lord, the coming of our Lord, theologically. John wants us to understand just who it is. John pushes the beginning way back. Would you not agree in John chapter 1? First verses of John chapter 1 says, This one who came to the earth in the form of a man, this one is the one who was the creator in the beginning, who was there with the Father, and he called this world into existence. You're saying, whoa, the beginning goes a whole lot further back than just a couple of years or even a few hundred years before the birth of our Lord Jesus. John takes us back to eternity past and says, this is where it all starts. So he then represents and introduces our Lord Jesus, not only as the creator, but the source of life and light. God manifest in flesh, 14 through 18 of chapter 1. Very great theological statement about the incarnation of our Lord. And then at verses 19 and following, here he is introduced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this gets to my concern and my excuse, good, bad, or indifferent, for taking so long to get to Revelation. What troubles me about Christmas is, uh, and, and by the way, things are changing, culture is changing. I, I would have not said it quite the way uh, five years ago that I'd say it today. Now, even Christmas is unpopular. Isn't that amazing? Having a, a, a manger scene in a bank or whatever, it's like, you know, something horribly offensive to all of that. But at least in bygone days, those good old days that all of us think about, especially as old uh, coots, when you talk about those bygone days, it was, it was acceptable to think about a Jesus in the manger. I mean, anybody that you can change their diapers, you get the feeling like you can be at ease with them, right? You get the feeling like, you know, I'm in charge here. But that obviously is not really the case. But people in general, and especially unbelievers, feel rather comfortable in talking about a baby in a manger because it doesn't seem to have the threat or the ominous features that we may associate with our Lord in other contexts. Now, I want to say to you, that when you read through the Gospels carefully, 
you ought to understand that the Gospels have given us significant clues that the Jesus who came as that little baby obviously not only existed in eternity past, but that Jesus is one who is mighty and powerful and glorious. So, when you see his baptism, you see the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's not a bad introduction to get one from heaven. The transfiguration is very interesting, especially in light of Revelation chapter 1, where those first verses are an exhortation to listen to the words that God is going to speak through the Lord Jesus to the church in uh, the churches in, in Revelation. Listen up, in effect, is the essence of that. In the transfiguration, whether it's Matthew 17, 5, Mark 9, 7, or Luke 9, 35, when our Lord's glory is revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, there is one command that's common to all three accounts, and that is, listen to him. So the essence is, when you come to see our Lord Jesus for who he is in all of his splendor and glory and power, he's better than E.F. Hutton. You better listen to what he has to say, and especially when God the Father is telling you right out of heaven. John chapter 12, you have that voice from heaven. You have the spectacular phenomena related to our Lord's resurrection in terms of what happens at the tomb and the angels and people, you know, being scared out of their wits with what's going on when, when the angels appear and, and so on. And those people in Matthew who are raised and are going about Jerusalem as an evidence of, of what has happened at the resurrection of our Lord. Stephen's view of the glory of God in his uh, in Acts chapter 7, when he is dying and he looks into heaven and sees the glory of God, Paul, in all three of his accounts of his conversion, talks about that great light that caught his attention and stopped him dead in his tracks, and Paul understood he better be listening to whoever's speaking to him on the road to Damascus. So all of those things give us a clue that our Lord Jesus is one who needs to be, in one sense, feared. He needs to be looked upon with awe, and he needs to be heard and, and, and obeyed. Now, that takes me to Philippians uh, chapter 2. Because I guess what I'm really concerned about uh, is that we may leave Jesus in the manger. I'm not against Christmas. I am not against celebrating the coming of our Lord Jesus. I am against mentally leaving him in the manger and thinking of the Jesus that we worship and serve as as the baby in the manger when that's not the way he's represented to us. So when you look at Philippians chapter 2, you see in those first four verses a call to the believers, to the church, to exercise humility in their relationships toward one another, considering the interests of others better, more important than our own personal interest, as the key to unity within the church. Then when you come to verse 5, you have our Lord Jesus cited as the example of how humility works, and he speaks of his humility in leaving the splendor of heaven and coming down to earth and being obedient to the Father to the point of death. 
But you can't stop there because he goes on in verse 9. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who were in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That tells me that I better not stop at Philippians 2.8 because the, the result, the outcome of our Lord's humility and coming to earth is His exaltation by the Father to where He is the one now to whom all of creation must bow and acknowledge Him for who He is in, in all of, of His greatness. And then that plays out, I think, if you look in the rest of Philippians, he's saying that needs to be the attitude that is worked out by believers in in terms of their Christian walk. Interestingly, when you look back in 1 Peter and you see the call to holiness there in 1 Peter, what's the first thing Peter talks about that is the mark of holiness? And he talks a lot about it. Submission. Submission of citizens to government, citizens of abused slaves to their abusive masters, wives who may also have difficult husbands who are to submit to them, and then the younger who are to submit to their elders. So there is a whole lot of of call for humility that works itself out in submission, and it's one of the evidences of of a godliness, of holiness in the life of the believer. Now, it's been a, a little bit of time getting there, but we've now found our way finally to Revelation uh, chapter 1. This is a letter, as you know, that is addressed to seven churches. And you ought not to have the opinion that somehow it's only those two chapters, chapter 2 and 3, that are in the uh, sight of the Lord in terms of speaking to that church. Because if you look back in Revelation chapter 22 and the closing words uh, and verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. So all of the book of Revelation is for the churches. And and I think it is safe for us to say, not merely those seven churches of Asia, but I would say it is that which God speaks to his church in this uh, day and time as well. So it's a letter to the churches. It begins with an exhortation to listen. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written on it for the time is near. When you come to the second and third chapter, what do you hear time after time? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
If there is anything that Revelation is saying to us, it's listen up. And that's why I chose the title, Look Who's Talking. Who's Talking has a lot to do with how well you listen, and it's our Lord himself who is speaking to us in Revelation chapter 1. So we had better hear him well. As I look at at the uh, description of our Lord in verses 10 through 20 uh, of Revelation chapter 1, I think I would have to say this. I, I note the word like, and it's used repeatedly there. So I think when we, when we hear those words of description, I don't think we ought to look at this as a photograph and to say this is a picture of Jesus. It is a representation of our Lord in terms of the focus on certain elements of his being. Now, I'm not saying he's totally unlike that, but when you come to Revelation chapter 5, you're going to have a rather strange description of our Lord in terms of seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits. And i got to tell you, that description, I can't put a mental picture to that, but I have to say, both of those descriptions are descriptions of our Lord that are to catch us by the ears, so to speak, get our attention, and manifest the glory of our Lord Jesus so that he is the one to whom we should listen and pay attention. When I read Revelation chapter 1, it also causes me to think back in terms of the Old Testament prophecies. Now, you see that in verse 7, where that is a throwback to Zechariah 12.10, but it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn after him. Pretty clearly, going back and saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. I also, as I read Revelation chapter 1, I am reminded of some key texts in the book of Daniel. I'm reminded of Daniel's, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, where you have the king with the, with the head of gold, or the, the the image with the head of gold, and, and the upper, uh, chest of silver, and then, and then of, uh, bronze and so on, and then the, remember the feet are, are iron and mixed with clay, not so good especially when you're hit by a stone from nowhere and you you kind of vaporize in the process. But that was a depiction of human kingdoms. When you come to chapter 7 in Daniel, and then even more so in chapter 10, you see a description of our Lord which looks a lot like, not identical to, but a lot like the description that we see uh, in in Revelation chapter 1. Let's take just a, a quick moment and look at Daniel uh, chapter 10 and verse 5. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a, a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body was like burl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet were like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. And basically what he says there is, when I saw that vision, it just took all the strength out of me and I just collapsed. Remember, the angel puts his hand on him and and so on. A lot like what we see described in in Revelation uh, chapter 1. 
But when you look at Revelation chapter 1, while there is reference to the Father, would you not agree that the centerpiece of Revelation 1 is the Son, is our Lord Jesus? He is the one who is riveted to our attention and the one that we are to heed because he is speaking uh, to his church uh, in, these, in these words. The other thing that's interesting now, when you compare the book of Revelation, and especially in chapter 1, where we're at, uh, to the book of Daniel, you see one significant difference. And that is, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 12, the, the, the Lord says to Daniel, these things are happening and they're going to take place off in the distant future. Seal them up. These are sealed and they're not going to happen for a good while. There's going to be a resurrection and so on and these are all going to take. But, but in a sense, what he's saying to Daniel is relax. It's not going to happen for a while. That's not the same in Revelation, is it? Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. These are things which must shortly take place. Verse 3. The time is near. And you see the same thing in Revelation 22 where it says, don't seal them up. Because this coming of our Lord is something that is now near, not far. And, and so we need to, we need to approach all this in terms of the urgency, I think, which, which that brings to our mind. So here's what I'm really getting to in all of that. The second coming of our Lord, his glorious coming, is rooted and based in his first coming. And they're inseparably tied together. When you look at John's depiction of the coming of our Lord in the Gospel of John, he goes back as far as you could go. Would you agree with me? Here's Jesus, who is with the Father in the beginning, who has no beginning... And he is the creator. The gospel of John takes us back as far as one can go. The book of Revelation takes us forward as far as one can go. And it now spells out the implications of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for the future. And so now we see the full-orbed dimensions of this, thanks to John and not to exclude other other writers, but especially thanks to John, you see this whole full-orbed presentation so that rather than at Christmas time focusing only on those few days or even few years related to the coming of our Lord, we now see the implications of that spelled out. That was what Paul was talking about in Philippians 2. And, he's, and, and in verses 9 through 11, he's talking now about that time when Christ will reign supreme and all the world and all the universe will bow before him. So when you come now to Revelation chapter 5, you remember you have that account where there is the scroll. And, and my understanding of that scroll is that it is the, as it were, the detailed outline of the events of the future which God has purposed. And it has all these seals. The great dilemma is, who is worthy to undo those seals, to loosen those seals, to break the seals, so that now God's plan for the future can be unfolded and unwrapped? And you remember John talks about looking around and there doesn't seem to be anybody and he's in tears and whatever. And then he's told, look, 
the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the one who has redeemed man, he is worthy to open the scrolls. So what do you see in Revelation chapter 6? All of a sudden, the seals are being broken. The scroll is being opened up and God's plan for eternity is being worked out because of and based upon the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary. That's what I want us to see. When we celebrate Christmas, celebrate more than just the event of his appearance on earth, as wonderful as that is. Celebrate what it was for, as we do when we come to the Lord's Supper, and celebrate what it means. Because now it means that God has exalted the Lord Jesus to the highest place in heaven, and he is going to bring about in his second coming the outworking of all of his plans. So where does that take us? Well, number one, we ought to listen. We ought to listen to what the Lord has to say. That's the point of Revelation chapter 1. If this book starts with any emphasis, it's saying God himself is speaking. He is speaking through the Son. He is speaking through the one who has been exalted to the highest place, and men ought to listen to that, and in doing so, they will be blessed. End of Revelation, verses 18 and 19 says, and don't mess with what he says. It says, he who adds to anything in the revelation of that book, judgment's going to be added to him. He who takes away anything, that's going to cost him as well. So we not only need to listen to his word. Tom was saying that one of his kids you know, was asking, well, or, or some young people would ask, which part of it's true? From what I read in Revelation 22, I wouldn't mess with any of it. I wouldn't add to it. I wouldn't take away from it. I would leave it just the way it is and give heed to it. See, Jesus is the sovereign God who is in absolute control of the world and everything that is taking place. You know, when in our worship time, I had a passage in my mind that I was thinking about in relationship to that first uh, part of the Advent where there is the looking for the shepherd. And, and it was this text in Jeremiah 23, starting at verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and will bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Isn't it interesting that one of the ways in which God created a hunger in Israel for the good shepherd 
was by letting them have some lousy ones. I mean, that was, that was a much of the incentive. I can say this without fear of, of people thinking I'm being political because we have a lot of lousy shepherds, a lot of lousy leaders. I don't care which side of the aisle they're on. We've just got lousy leaders. And, you know, if you want to have a good shepherd, he's got to be a righteous shepherd. And the problem with leaders is that they're not righteous. And, and so you can make promises, you can do all those things. But, you know, sometimes we, and particularly me, sit around, we wring our hands, and we get all uptight about it. It seems to me that we ought to respond to bad leadership in, in a variety of ways. But one of the ways that we ought to respond is the way Israel did to their bad leaders. And that is to say, oh, for the day when the righteous leader comes, when the good shepherd comes, when he establishes justice, when he deals rightly with evil. And that's what Revelation is telling us. Revelation is saying to us that our Lord Jesus in his first coming dealt with sin and its consequences. He came in humble form and humbled himself to death on the cross. But when he comes again, he's coming in a different mode. He's coming in a different format. He is coming to reign and to rule. So what does that say? Well, the end of Revelation says it about as well as you can. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the invitation is come. Come to the water. Come to him who has made provision for the forgiveness of your sins, for the provision of eternal life in heaven with him, and never fearing his wrath, come. That's the invitation to unbelievers. And for believers, it's even so, come Lord Jesus, isn't it? Isn't that what our desire and our aspiration should be? Bottom line is, nobody's going to fix this place. Now, we have our responsibilities, but nobody's going to fix it and make it righteous. There is only one way that it's going to be right, and that is when the King of Kings comes and establishes his righteousness on the earth. That's the message. And so when we look at the cradle, and when we look at the babe in the manger of Bethlehem, We need to understand that the one we focus on now, the one who speaks to us as a church, is the one who is exalted in heaven. Not now, still on earth. Exalted in heaven, and he has the favor of the Father, and he is waiting for the day when the Father says, go fix it. What great news that is for Christians. and What great motivation it is for unbelievers to call on Jesus for salvation. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for Christmas and for the the joy of celebrating your incarnation in the person of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he came and took on humanity and bore the sins of men like and women like us. Pray that all of those in the hearing of my voice may have called upon him and trusted him for salvation. Thank you that you are now uh, exalted in the Lord Jesus. He is exalted uh, in heaven and waiting for the day when he will return and and loosen the seals and bring about the fulfillment of your purposes and plans to establish righteousness on the earth. May we all 
eagerly say, even so, come Lord Jesus. And may it be even this year, we pray in Jesus' name.